August 30th, 2018. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Pope Runyon. And tonight we review and explore the almost 1,000-page-long introspective philosophical and spiritual journal of the late California science fiction writer Philip K. Dick. 1928-1982. This remarkable documentation of a classical mystical experience and its ramifications in and beyond the author's literary works. The exegesis is also a chronicle of a genius battling for sanity and a true religious philosophy as he lives and works through what is obviously and admittedly mental illness. Dick is best known for his darkly paranoid science fiction novels and stories. The novel Valis, V-A-L-I-S, Vast Active Living Intelligence System, is the fictionalized version of his 1974 vision, and much of the exegesis ruminates on its impact and significance. He was born a Roman Catholic, raised in, in Quaker schools. Dick's vision is biblical and especially Christian, but he analyzes it as Gnostic and Neoplatonic, which, of course, the combination of the two is hermetic, and... Uh, he defines Christ as essentially female, or having a female dual nature. He later defines himself as a neo-Marxist philosopher and gives us insights into the spiritual aspects of the 1960s and 70s counterculture that uh, continues to perpetuate the social and political divide in our society today. So, if you want to spend an hour with us in the mind of Philip K. Dick, join us and we will inquire within. As above, so below. As within, so without. Now, on January 26th and 2012, six years ago, we broadcast a Hermetic Hour show called The Divine Madness of Philip K. Dick, which commented on the magical and hermetic aspects of his very introspective, psychodynamic, and even psychedelic science fiction novels and stories. Now, tonight is not a rebroadcast of that earlier show. Tonight, we will deal with Philip K. Dick's personal, very magical, and mystical journal, which he called his exegesis. This doorstopper of a book, 940 pages long, published in 2011, almost 30 years after Dick's passing, is not recommended for those who are not familiar with Dick's fictional writings. But for those of us who have been fascinated with such works as Phallus, The Divine Invasion, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, that became the film Blade Runner, and other epics of his haunted paranoid universe, the exegesis is a treasure trove of wisdom and a microcosmic intellectual testament of the turbulent age through which he lived. The Counterculture, Social, and Political Revolution of the 1960s and 70s. He was a man of his time and of an earlier time, first century Rome during the beginnings of Christianity. He was in touch with God and transformed by a classic mystical experience in 1974, which he tried to fictionalize in his novel Valis which is an anagram for Vast Active Living Intelligence System. His vision of God has information transmitted via a pink laser beam. Now, he developed an overlapping theory of historical ages, believing that we, because he was a solipsist and, and, and we, and, and he is also we of the universal mind, we're still living in the first century. The modern world is an illusion, or, as he repeated over and over again as a mantra, the empire never ended. Now, he went to Quaker schools as a child, and he became a student of the Bible. He identified with the early Christian martyrs and equated them with his friends in the radical counterculture of the 60s and 70s. He eventually envisioned President Richard Nixon as a sort of a Roman emperor. He equated Nixon's resignation with the Christian conquest of the Roman Empire. He had a split persona, 
named Thomas, whom he believed lived a parallel life in first century Rome. This probably derived from the Gospel of Thomas and the Nag Hammadi Christian Gnostic writings which he was studying. Dick's mindset was very much influenced by the writings of Carl Jung. God, whom he eventually personified as Valus, that's spelled all that all in caps, V-A-L-I-S, includes a racial memory of the universal collective unconscious. He also studied the writings of Hans Jonas, where he may have derived the notion that ancient Rome was very similar to modern civilization and that Gnostic Christianity was an outgrowth of the anomie of lost souls created by the urban sprawl of the Roman Empire. This and the continuation of Christianity, along with the survival of Roman law and politics in modern America, may have sustained his concept that the empire never ended. One of the important factors in Dick's personal psychodynamic universe is his continuing relation with his dead twin sister. Philip and Jane were premature twins, but Jane did not survive. She died six weeks after they were born. Philip was convinced that Jane's spirit lived on in his mind as his Jungian anime, the female side of his nature. Jane became Phil's phantom twin and haunted him and his writings throughout his career. When he had his mystical experience in early 1974, he dreamed of Christ as also embodying a female spirit. He even conceived that Jesus was dominated by this female side and even envisioned the Savior as the puppet Pinocchio with the divine feminine pulling the strings. The late Frederick Adams would have enjoyed this and would probably have rendered it in a surrealistic painting. I should note that Philip K. Dick's studies of Christian Gnosticism did not extend to include the Valentinian tradition. In this respect, he was following the trend of his era. The Gospel of Thomas was the theological bombshell in the 60s and the 70s. It was not until 1982 the year of Dick's passing, that we began to look at the Gospel of Philip and the Gospel of Mary at the prompting of a popular hoax in the form of a best-selling book titled Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which eventually spawned an equally popular novel, The Da Vinci Code. The key spiritual concept behind Valentinian Gnostic Christianity was that marriage as a reunification of the divided male and female souls was the true Christian sacrament, not the crucifixion. Both Holy Blood and the Da Vinci Code promoted the secret tradition that Jesus had been married to Mary Magdalene and, and, that, and that their children survived to carry on their bloodline. Now, we can only speculate on Philip K. Dick's post-mortem reaction to the discovery of Valentinian conceptions. But we can say with certainty that his dream of Christ's feminine component indicates that he would not be unsympathetic. Now, during his tempestuous life as a struggling writer, he had been married five times and sired three children. In the later pages of the exegesis, he laments that, I cannot hold on to a woman, I am a failure. As if he seems to know that marriage and family are Christian values that he and we should perpetuate. And yet, under peer pressure, he veers away to flirt with the radical Marxism of the Vietnam War protesters. In this, he seems to validate my contention that the cultural Marxists have hijacked Christianity. Faith, hope, and charity are now liberal progressive aspirations, and the Christians have become the tyrannical materialists. Actually, most of the exegesis is a series of philosophical and theological speculations on the nature, structure, motivation, and intention of God, malice, uh, to its host and agents, which who are human beings. From Jung, he quite naturally moves through the philosophical chain 
from the pre-Socratians, Parmenides and, 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 and Empedocles, on through Pythagoras and Plato, finally settling in quite naturally on the hermetic amalgam of Gnostic dualism and monastic Neoplatonism, which makes Dick's visionary work applicable to our hermetic hour presentation. Vallis is definitely a hermetic visionary work. And we are proud to include Philip K. Dick, among, along with Carl Jung, in our list of, list of modern hermetic masters. To be fair, we should admit that Dick's subject, Vallis, that Dick sub subjects Vallis to some Eastern or Western Eastern analogs. He compares Vallis to Brahman and to the Tao of physics, the I Ching, but in the main, his references are Western. In the later speculations, he goes through a non-Christian speculation under the influence of Spinoza and the Kabbalah. And at one point, he rejects the historical Jesus. He rejects the former Gnostic idea that Jehovah is an evil demiurge and begins to see Vallis as YHVH, even having a vision of the letters of the Tetragrammaton. He entertains the idea that his God in the novel, The Divine Invasion, which is considered part of the Vallis trilogy, is actually Satan. But finally, after his passing in 1982, before, excuse me, before his passing in 1982, he returns to his original Christian interpretation, or at least so it seems. Now we are left with the impression that all of his speculations may have validity in some world or dimension of his multiverse. The exegesis is an intellectual, philosophical, spiritual smorgasbord cafeteria where we can go down the line and load up our plates with a feast of delicious ideas and metaphysical possibilities. The only catch is you should at least read Vallis before you enter the serving line. And so, having introduced you to the volume, let me open the book, consult my notes, and read selections relating to the above summary. Now, we're on page 197. I had the most extraordinary dream in which the dual nature of Christ was revealed. It took the form of a medieval diptych in which, on the right, the inner nature of Christ was shown in a picture nebulous, but resembling Michelangelo's painting of the Delphic Sibyl. And under the right, the right-hand picture was written the word she, and then the word secret. And the left-hand picture was shown clearly. It was the puppet Pinocchio, as a string puppet, which, was, which is to say, worked animated from above. And the picture of the puppet was one of a mirror model of a human, very wooden, very uh, without intrinsic life, and even had heavy shoes to weight it down to give it the semblance of substance. In the very center of the frame, below the two pictures, and equidistant from both, appeared the three unbroken lines of the trigram, Xian, and that's an I Ching trigram, that of creative masculinity. This lay outside the diptych, thereby showing an outward presentation to the world outside of the pure, unadulterated, absolute masculinity, bearing in mind that the female, and I think superior part, called she, was identified also as secret. And I understand from this dream that the female component's presence in the dual nature is a secret, probably is to be kept secret. Also, it does not reveal itself in Christ's actions or manner, which guards the secret, of course, and that the masculine nature is worked by an inner feminine one is never stated anywhere. Or it would cease to be a secret. I can conclude that it is Hagia Sophia that is represented here. I get a lot from this diptych representation. One thing I get is the impression that although gently given, the word secret is an injunction to me to keep my mouth shut. And this is the first evidence I have had that there is indeed, as Paul calls it, the element of sacred secrets in esoteric Christianity. What the... Uh, 
the ICC says, I was initiated into at least one of these sacred secrets in effect that Christ's deepest nature is feminine, which is to say holy wisdom. That he will return is not, is not a secret. Another secret is the relationship between the shamans of Greek culture and Christ, the Holy Spirit, which is to say the, 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 the theolepsy induced by Dionysus. Specifically, though, I am told to cool it in relation to Christ's female nature. Secret means secret. I presume the early Christians who underwent theopsy by this secret knew this, and they did not tell. That it is also Cumean, the also the Cumean Sibyl and Delphic shows a continuity from Greek mystery religions and Greek culture, also not told. Because several cultures are involved, Hebrew, Greek, and Roman, and I suspect also Iranian, the wise or good mind of Ahura Mazda. Now, let me comment on that a little bit. Valentinian Christianity, which Gnostic Christianity, which Dick was not aware of, um, has an entirely, uh, they're, they're entirely unsecret about the whole thing. All right, let's go over to, uh, over to page 200 here. The puppeteer speaks through the puppet. Who is a mouthpiece then for the for the god gods or God? Is this not what the dream shows? The human component should be a clear and limpid structure through which divine wisdom can express itself unhindered. Its expression should not be and should not be meditated. There is no voice really but that of the puppeteer. The puppet has none of his own. And the immortal and divine voice speaks from within the man, Jesus. He is assimilated to it, and yet we see only the puppet, the man. He is invisibly transubstantiated. I dreamed last night of a manuscript page of mine in which I had three consecutive paragraphs beginning with the word she, an obvious reference to the she secret in Christ's dream. In this more recent dream, I found space on the page to insert a paragraph which did not begin with she, and I felt it was wrong always to start with she, and I added erotic material about nipples, etc. Now, thinking about this, I remember my first vision preceding all the others, which was of Aphrodite and had to do with her right nipple. And I wonder if there was an elliptical allusion to Aphrodite, uh, reference to Empedocles in his recent dream. The dream, engendered from my own mind purely, is still valuable as it recalls to me that I had forgotten, namely the vision of the Cyrenian Aphrodite beyond the golden rectangle door. Does this dream suggest, my good Lord, that she is, re is related to or is none other than the goddess of love known to the Greeks? Empedocles felt that Aphrodite was the steersman of all Cressori. Uh, this is all very anxiety-producing to me. I add, if so, indeed, it would be marked secret. But I appeal to the philosophy of Empedocles to indicate a lofty as well as, as an erotic element to, to this. He held her to be the ultimate entity drawing things and people together, the star of love, which is how I ended my speech, meaning Christ has as the Encyclopedia Britannica calls her. The generative principle of all life, a mother goddess, not sex. Doesn't the nipple point to something like this, nourishing? Marx says that the parables were intended, and they interject a little note here. His sister Jane died primarily because his mother his mother didn't have enough milk for both the twins. That's something that that, 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 that he doesn't mention here, but 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 it, but it might have some bearing on it. Mark says that the parables were intended to confuse and not to inform everyone except the disciples. The latter understanding of the esoteric meaning, the outsiders getting only the the exoteric meaning, 
which would fail to save them. This was especially true regarding parables about the approaching kingdom of God. I keep forgetting this. How much of the real inner meaning has come down to us? The written gospels record probably mostly the exoteric parable meanings, not the inner core. Whether we like it or not, it is there in Mark, if not elsewhere. And this this favors the view of an elect within the body of mankind, at least so far as Jesus went. Maybe now there is a third covenant which will include all creation or anyhow all men. And I am thinking in particular of the grain of wheat sown into the ground to rise again, a mystery theme common to Greek mystery religions, in fact, evidently the basic one. What it really means to know this enables the bearer to achieve what is achieved, eternal life, and how it is contained, as well as the what I think that that in uh, in three nineteen seventy four at the height of despair and fear and grieving I stumbled into the kingdom stumbled around for a while and then stumbled back out none the wiser as to how I got there barely aware of where I had been and no idea as to how I stumbled out and seeking always to find my way back ever since oh shucks if it wasn't the kingdom I don't know what it could be. With its bells and ladies singing and the void and the trash and the gutter glowing and the golden rectangle doorway with the sea and the figures beyond the moonlight, there were people living there, especially the lady, and it was alive and it had personality and it explained everything to me. Now I don't see or understand anything. At that time, I could even remember back to my origins. My real origins, the stars. What am I doing here? I forget. But I knew once. Amnesia has returned. The veil has fallen back where it was. The divine faculties are occluded as before. Obviously, I didn't accomplish it. I was given it since I don't know how to find it again. Man is not as wise as some stones, which in the dark point toward their homes. My soul sunk down in ignorance again, blind and deaf, ensnared by gross matter, limited, the long, dark night of, of a, is a lousy place to be. So let's move on, depressing note, to... Uh, to this discussion on pantheism and panentheism. I just read the Encyclopedia Britannica on, panen- on pantheism and panentheism. God develops himself toward perfection through history, dialectically, and the goal of history is the growth of human freedom. Thus, I learn to my delight that most of what I experienced, saw, and learned in 374 confirms Hegel. And thus I am a Hegelian, which is fine with me. That's thesis thesis and antithesis. Um, The deity I experienced was in process of becoming, changing and perfecting himself. Infinite goodness, but perhaps limited power through unlimited knowledge. What we call history was the dimension world in which this fulfillment takes place. Man, in in participating in history, joins, if not at the very least, on God's side, and then perhaps even melds with God himself and is a stubborn or, or a section of God. God is eminent. The universe, the world, is his body. But he is greater than the world. That's panentheism. What is not God is not wholly real. That's acosmic panentheism. Only God is wholly real. But he is surrounded by a veil, dokos, an appearance like, similar to colored lights given off as if he is an incredibly multifaceted, perfect sphere revolving all the time, including past and future, is present to God as a landscape of the now. He is very close to man, hidden only by the veil. He is Deus Abscundus. The phenomenal world we see is projected by him, 
as if omitted. However, he is capable of infusing, transubstantiating it. And because of this, a hylozoastic universe exists. It is an organism with news governing it. Men can be made use of by God to achieve results within the historical process. In terms of human life, evolution of history, uh, is, it is designed by God toward greater freedom. This is how humans should view it. But a switch in viewpoint can occur during which men cease to view themselves as individual men at all and view themselves as microforms of God. And in which case, the goal is not human freedom, but recollection that they are incarnations of God, having remembered and can rejoin and regain their identity. God the macrocosm. God has entered his own cosmos so that it is not only his body, but the body enclosing him in a three-part process of emanation, sustaining and final reabsorption. The last part begins with the restoration of memory, that one is God or part of God. And at this point, the banishment is already ending or has ended. To this, remember, to this, to thus remember is to have passed entirely through emanation, sustainment as distinct from God, and to have started back. All that remains is to get back. And this is the sole line of movement. Now let's move on to an appreciation of his vision. What I must realize is that it is a bourgeois prejudice to suppose that for something to have worth, there must be a practical application. The ancient Greeks knew that pure philosophical understanding for its own sake was even just in terms of the quest, the highest value or activity of man, homo sapiens man, who know, is the man who knows. However, look what this three-year ongoing quest to understand, learn, and know has done for me. Joy, awe, peace, tranquility, a sense of purpose, a personal worth, and above all meaning from my awareness of God. Uh, we'll see. Moving right along to the bicameral mind. Uh, this, this, I think, is one of the most important observations of the... Of the uh, and originally I was critical of it. I think what means the most to me about Vallis is that when I saw him, I saw our rightful king glimmering and darting and flowing like electricity and fire and water. And I saw him powerful now, able to arrange direct events, their outcome, shaping the world, the holy presence so beautiful and magical. When will he appear to take the throne openly? I know a great secret. He is here. I don't think it enters humans all that often. Or there would be more experiences of this kind reputed in history. Or those people thus animated are hip enough to keep it to themselves, forming an invisible true church of the esoteric. I say at this point, I was the uncut stone. Flung, I am sure, it did intervene. It does not customarily do this, or we'd know, or would we? We don't know, we don't know now. Herewith, the mimicry is, has disappeared into objects and events totally. To see it, you had to temporarily to be it. I know this because Tessa saw nothing. No one else has said anything. This is why my Vallis concept is required to explain why no one saw, sees, or has seen anything. The Lost Voices of the Gods in Time Magazine, March 14, 1977. On Julian James, the origin of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind. Man was bicameral, according to James, until about 2000 B.C. He could hear the voices of the gods coming from the speech center of his right, of his right hemisphere, and then he lost bicamerality and became monocameral. My theory, the loss of bicamerality, is what we call the fall, the biblical fall. 
we could no longer walk and talk with God. Well, to restore bicamerality is now theoretically again possible. Ornstein and Mogan on bilateral hemispheric parity. This forthcoming event will mark the end of the period of the fall. Our sin is centered, is self-centered, monocamerality. What then are the gods, those who the Sibyls at Delphi heard, a higher life form than us, we're located. Here and there anyhow, our, our monocomeral consciousness must have been a sort of revolt against them. We were cut off, but they still exist for our back. I heard, I heard one or, the, or, or one of them in, in 374. I became temporarily bicameral, and in so doing, I achieved what Christ uh, sought for us. I entered the kingdom, which equals restoration of the long-lost bicamerality. We lost it in 2000 B.C. Uh, 2,000 years later, he came down here, was incarnated to restore bicamerality. Maybe something went wrong. He was rejected. His true teaching lost. Now the chance comes again. St. Sophia Reborn will teach us how to restore bicamerality. We will no longer be cut off from the gods. We will be whole again, not half men. Jane's theory fills in some of the missing parts. Originally, we possessed bicameral hemispheric parity. I had guessed that. Our right brains are dormant. Bilateral hemispheric parity is not an evolutionary leap toward, uh, toward in one sense. In that sense, it is a restoration. But this time, there will be consciousness, not unconsciousness, in the two hemispheres. So in that sense, it is evolutionary. Anyhow, the state I was in in, three, in, in 374, March of 1974, uh, is it. Did the right side of the brain produce divine speech? Times Caption asks, the oracles of Delphi? I guess I'm a pioneer, along with other pioneers in the brain revolution. I've had the bicameral experience, and my theorizing isn't bad either. He, man, became bicameral. The left side of the brain for speech, the right hemisphere produced the inner commands. Eventually... The voices were attributed to kings and gods, to the kings and the gods. But this broke down sometime between 2000 and 1000 B.C. Why Jane's best guess, a man was somehow jolted into awareness by social chaos. Vast migration, invasions, natural catastrophes drove the wedge of consciousness between God and man. Man became modern. Even so, newly conscious man tried desperately to reawaken the silent gods, turning to oracles, seers, etc. In the the Old Testament, the voices of Yahweh and the prophets grow silent, replaced by subjective men wrestling with unanswered questions. And to think that as early as my 11th grade physics class, I got an inner answer from the gods, which I had prayed for. Thus, I say, the gods are no longer entirely silent. Bicamerality is resurfacing at least after three to 4,000 years. Well, Christ 2,000 years ago didn't just hear the voices. He was the voice, and it will be so again. Thus, rather than asking how come I could see him, I should ask, why don't we see him normally? What hinders us and how? a command by the God. This is similar to my insight, that it isn't that the gods have become silent. It is that although they are still here and still speak and write, we have ourselves become unable either to see or to hear them. If James figures the gods are in our right hemispheres but not silent, I amend this to say the gods in our right hemisphere still command us. But now but now they do so without our knowing it. Of them being there that they one of the one of their commands being you hear nothing and do not know that you do as we say. We still obey 
but we do not consciously hear the commands, but we obey. And these inner commands, right in synchronized unison with stimuli, triggers lying external in us and outside in things, assemblies and events to which we are caused to react. The command voice may be in our heads and in our right hemispheres as chain figures. But Valis lies objectively outside, too. The key to all this is memory. The trace deposits of the past, which in their pure form in the Logos, are the creators of immortality, retrieval, and permanence. First, we observe and participate, and this lays down memory tracks in us, and then collectively we can be utilized as storage schools, memory centers forming over the millennia, a total memory center matrix. Proof of this, that in my brain, which was 47 years old, retrieval dating back two to 3,000 years, and the analog person thereof was retrieved, which was no accidental byproduct of the, of the March 1974 experience, but the very success of it, the core of it, of it itself, my 47-year-old brain able to print out that enormously long-term memory and restore to life that person, although he had long ago physically died. Likewise, in this way, at any given later time, I could be retrieved. I am one of those who not only knows that those who sleep in death will awaken. But I know how, and I know, and I know it too, by Gnosis, not Pistis. Thus, I see that the fact of hemonesis is tied in with basic informational quality of the universe. After all, it was information, the golden fish sign and spoken words, which retrieved, which retrieved me, whereupon I could distinguish other higher information and learn from it. Suppose the human mind is regarded as an information repository. If you know what signal to convey to it, this human mind brain can print out, summon back, whole buried for millennia in, in intelligences. And if you know the right signal, in effect, this inhibiting stimulus button to press and the consciousness of the brain doesn't even know it has it. Thomas was summoned to do what only he and not I could do. The right signal given to the computer and its memory bank fired. Then we are not just repositories of info. We are repositories of the sleeping dead. And to that I would like to add a quote by Socrates. We don't learn things, we just remember. Now, I think that's one of the most profound uh, passages in this, in this exegesis. Uh, here's what he has to say about love. Love is just... I reify the whole concept into sterile intellectual jargon. Let me finish by saying, love is the life and joy and heart of the system. Love is its boundless energy, its soul, and the voluntary force drawing its elements together into a happy crisis, where it is more fun to dance than to think, better to play than to talk. If I am right, it is laughing right now at my abstract model, or at least smiling. I certainly hope so. Uh, let's see and the mother goddess also participated in this vision I'll read this one the great mother retreated out of sight behind the figure of Christ and rules the cosmos invisibly yet she disclosed herself to me the civil visually the female or not male voice and the Saint Sophia prophecy itself great revelation has been made to me the female hypostasis of God which is unknown and to the whole modern world it has been thousands of years since she was believed in so let's go on to and here he here he determines that YH VH is in fact the demiurge the wisdom of Solomon Jesus 
was a disguise. She took. Now she is everywhere, being projected, being a projected hologram. She can take any form she wishes, including an animal, and she dies with us, for us, and as us. This above all, she has a sacrifice for us to the dread, to the dread hour. For the human, the reception and amplification shatters the artifact's rigid programming which had enslaved them. The tiny, lovely voice speaks to him of resisting one time, thus breaking the hold. It resembles the snake whispering in Eden. All is the opposite of what it seems. The inner whisper speaks of rebellion against the vast power which loudly proclaims itself as YHVH. The Gnostics were right. Regarding the true deity, true God, one must read the Old Testament backwards. Are we to worship power, per se, confusing might with the sacred? All that is colossal is fraud. Out of the rejected trash speaks the little, sane, clear voice. We can ignore it and worship power, but the irony is that the worship of power robs us of our power. It is all arrogance arrogated by YHVH. Worship external power is to lose it for oneself. The disparity becomes absolute. And then, too, there is the teaching aspect. And the lesson is this. Not to yield to power per se, not to worship it because it can destroy you. That is a false god, the false god. All right. This is more on the goddess here on page 374. He saw vast open books of wisdom. Most of all, he heard across vast reaches of space, her voice advising, informing, and comforting him, and telling him that holy wisdom would be born again, and that the Buddha was in the park born. She intervened to extricate him and his son, medically and by counsel, out of danger and she led him across the bridge to the upper world, to the wastes and void of the emptiness of love and restoration to God. And finally, she showed him the mysterious mind, here but hidden, making plastic all reality by its thought and will. She showed him life and intelligence and will everywhere, breaking the prism and breaking freedom to man, bringing freedom to man, operating secretly on history to bring man to safety. And she gave him eternal life and her beauty, wisdom, and love, and most of all, her companionship. He understood that she was not God, but that she spoke in God's name and knew everything past, present, and future. She announced her presence here and her intervention here. She told him that she had seen every evil thing and would correct it through justice, that the weak would be protected, and she protected him. But then she told him that a time would come when she could no longer speak to him. And after that, he did nothing but try to remember her and the sound of her voice and cared nothing about anything else. He was lost in dreams and memories because of what he had seen and heard, and he could never explain it to anyone else. But she had promised to come back for him at the end of his life. And with the sound of the magic bells, Easter bells, denoting the dead and risen Christ, so he knew a secret. He should never tell that the Savior was female, that the second comforter was God's daughter, God's darling and delight, who had existed before creation and had aided in creation. By her, all things came into being, and nothing existed except through her. And he understood the last mystery of all. And although she was not God, she was God. Much of this he knew because he remembered his former life thousands of years ago when he had been one of the original true Christians and had received the true true, uh, gospel never written down from those who had known it before had known her. 
He remembered a great battle that he'd been in, along with others like him, as her agents, to destroy a sort of iron prison. And he realized that, again, he was fighting this battle. Now, as her agent again, along with others, uh, this this is... is uh, this is the kind of feminism, of course, that that uh, that Fred Adams would, uh, very much believed in, and and um, this 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 is the the feminism of Valentinian Christianity, even though uh, Dick Dick was still not aware of it. Uh, let's move on to uh, let's see, move on to September 1978, page 384. Uh, this is the this this is an essay on time and and, and parallel worlds, uh, very very similar to, to Shaver's simultaneous red dwarf stories. Um, so Thomas is not the former me or a multiple personality. The single sentence last night: there is someone else inside my head, and he's not living in this century. Someone else. Thomas is not me inside my head. He's not living in this century. This opens the door to that which is beyond conception, operating out of my head. He is locked into the world of acts. And here ends four years and six months of analysis and research. Time is unmasked as irreal. 1,900 years are disclosed as an aspect of one underlying matrix. My 27 years of writing in the same themes over and over again fits into place in uh, 1974, as comprehensible as the overthrow of Nixon. The trans-temporal constants have uh, have been explicated. When I got into the Volvokes model and the push-pull system, it was pretty close to slowly revolving matrix structure sphere. And the way it enhances what we project, a total system with its stations and connecting links, forming a vast brain. What a grand vision. How beautiful. The brain cannibalizing its earlier well-bound self to achieve total homeostasis and wakefulness for all its parts so that its brain, not the subbrain, interference of all mind, all lives, all knows. It sounds like sounds like he's, he's riding in Wells' time machine. But I'm under the scripture of silence because to publish all this, I'd have to tell about the immortal, authentic, apostolic Christians operating covertly in us. Perhaps I should destroy the exegesis. It's a journey which has reached its goal. In my dream, Kathy said, one day the masks will come off and you will understand all. It came to pass, and I was one of the masks, much to my surprise, and the whole world as well. Now this, uh, what follows here on the next page, is, is deals with uh, with his his uh, his idea of other dimensions and other, and other times. The only models for for this that I've ever heard of, let alone know, are my stories and novels. This situation appears again and again. Take the story Repeat Syndrome or the novel Maze. The same idea has been pointed out to me by all sorts of readers, reworked again and again, obsessively and endlessly. I keep trying out new ways to account for this situation. You see World X, and you have memories to match. That World X is irreal, a delusion, and hides real world Y, and the memories in you are fake to match fake World X. The explanations for this change, but the paradigm does not. I state the paradigm this way. A group of people live in a particular world, in effect, time and place. Then one or more of them begins by degree to discover, or the reader learns, that the world is only a veil of delusional world covering another real one, which the characters uh, once knew about and lived in, but have, have both forgotten and can no longer perceive. In a variety of ways, the latent, hidden, forgotten world shows through or intrudes or abolishes entirely the surface delusional world and the real memories of it return. This is exactly what happened to me at, uh, at, in uh, February of 1974. 
then more so in March of 74, and then I found that hidden real world depicted in the novel I wrote four years earlier, which was released the very week of uh, February 1974. I remember the truth. To reject absolute nature of why, that's Rome, circa A.D. 45, and hold that we have here twin, real, equal, separate selves and worlds housed in and emanating from one brain sticks us with a cosmology and epistemology more bizarre than the absolute versus the aspect. We wind up with the theoretical possibility of an unlimited number of equally real or irreal worlds and selves do and selves do entirely to brain sight stimulation or to some such sophisticated technology. Now this is so much like like Richard Shaver's simultane that it's almost identical. Which is a which is a more uh, more radical gestalt uh, than than even Brahmanism. Who can be in whatever form he wishes instead of real instead of real hidden world versus fake seeming world? We have more than one uh, infinity worlds all simulated uniformly and selves to match, and they become technological breakdowns which reveal the true state of affairs, and that seems to be the sight stimulated the sight stimulated brain. Uh, that we perceive as the basic model for my writing. My writing is proved um, by my my February and uh, March ex- experiences in 74 and vice versa. What I seem to be is a malconstructed entity, somehow the factory or a mechanism. First, stuck two personalities in my head, living in different worlds thousands of miles apart and thousands of years apart, thus disclosing the nature of self and the world in general. Uh, let's, let's move on to uh, uh, 11 here. This is, this is, this is uh, sort of where he begins to kind of, uh, to kind of flirt with Marxism here. The Soviets have guessed that Ubik contains a correct cosmology radically different from all accepted ones. Richard was on the right track with Empedocles. That's the what next and how come. I proved to be an idiot salmon, much to their disgust. Boy, what I could tell them now. Maybe the Marxists were right about Ubik being subversive to capitalist society. I'm tearing down time, space, causality, world. This this would be subversive to capitalism. To the bourgeois mind, which is intimately connected with 18th century Anglo-Saxon rationalism, Newton, Locke, Bentham, etc. I am systematically undermining the philosophies the philosophers and philosophy on which capitalism is based, and going back to a hermetic Gnostic Neoplatonism and a vitalism replacing mechanism, an ideal, a lethal blow to Anglo-Saxon thought, to its vault, to its vaulted pragmatism. I am not just asking what is real, as I have thought, as I have thought. In effect, Ubik. Uh, Ubik, I state, gives an alternative cosmology at heart of what appears to be skeptical inquiry and tearing down. The reason the statement um, is alternate cosmology is not recognized, even by me, that this particular cosmology is so radical and it's at odds with rationalistic, mechanical, scientific one that we, that we don't and we can't see it as a cosmology at all. That's a little bit difficult. That's a little bit difficult to understand. And and Ubik, by the way, uh, Ubik was a, was God in an aerosol can, and that's why I, that's why in a way I, I, it, it it may have been a danger to uh, to, to capital capitalistic commercialism because it was it was God in a in an aerosol can, and if and anything you had a problem with. You just sprayed it with Ubik, and Ubik would would solve the problem because it was it, Ubik was aerosol god. It was kind of a, like a, like a little one of those first aid uh, 
um, uh, aerosols. But uh, uh, this is a sort of a meta. This is a sort of a uh, a metaphysical synthesis here, and over here on page four hundred one. The invisible, unending victory of Christ is the greatest secret and joyous mystery of all. It is not well understood. There are no books on it and no authorities on it. But there it is, Christ against Caesar. The latent inner versus the obvious outer. This is the underlying tale told down through 2,000 years and yet never told at all. He is here and is not here. Gone and not gone. In defeat he wins. He picks up the dying straggler. He supports that which is failing and brings to ruin that which can defeat anything. Latent form is the master of obvious form. Which will you bet on? This kind of experience and wisdom goes back all the way to Pythagoras, to the Orphics, and to Dionysius himself. It is the great core wisdom of all mankind, including the Diva Kakud, uh, Kaku enlightenment of Siddhartha, the Buddha. I can say that I'm a Buddhist or even a Buddha, and that in, and that in Brahmanist terms, I have an avatar in me. I am an Orphic, a Neoplatonist, a Christian, a Hermetic. All these statements are true, and also I have, to some extent, formulated my own system, as Giordano Bruno did, and I have seen God. But it was not God. It was more, and I have cybernetics, biological, I have cybernetic biological model. I am with Jacob Borm, perhaps most of all, and with his teacher, Paracelsus, most of all. And even with Heraclitus, in his maxim that latent form is the master of obvious form. And in my inner, outer, upper, lower Christ versus Caesar system, and with Empedocles in his dialectic, and with Xenophanes in his concept of God or Nous, and especially with Parmenides in his forms of one and two, of which form two, lower, outer, obvious, is not really real. And thus, as with the Gnostics, I am a cosmic. But with Spinoza in his monism and the little Taoistic, he <laughs> got something for everybody. Man has magic micro-mirror of the, micro, of the macrocosm, reflects and hence contains the map or logos of the macrocosm replicated in miniature, Bruno and Hussey and Heraclitus. He contains the cosmos by containing this map or plan or logos of it and how it works. And since the cosmos is alive and thinks, the map is alive and thinks. Uh, let's see, that was, that was 12. Let's go on to 13. 13, all right. Now, this is, the, this is where he, he deals with, the, uh, with the, uh, at that time, the, the, un, the unrealized uh, Valentinian concept of the divided soul of the soul being half half uh, um, female and half male, and, and the sacred marriage, uh, which which was the origin of the of the uh, the romantic soulmate concept, and and uh, and even though Phil, you know as I said, uh, uh, Phil Dick was a uh, was was a Gnostic, and even he even uh, he even. I kind of delved into Simon Magus and Gnosticism, you know. Uh, entertained the idea that Simon might be might really be Jesus, which there have been which has been proposed. But uh, the uh, uh, I'm not reading this. And this is an aside comment. But uh, the Valentinian concept, Christian concept, which is based on 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 Jesus's defense of 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 women's rights in marriage, especially. And and uh, according to Valentinians, uh, Jesus, when Jesus said, what God has has joined, let no man put asunder, when Jesus was arguing with Hillel about divorce, uh, and and Jesus, you know, said, what what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. That that is one of the basis of the Valentinian 
idea that the soul was was separated at birth, and and uh, and, and and in order to uh, uh, to complete uh, to complete the soul, uh, you you had to get uh, you had to, to get married, and only if you did that could you have children, and that was their you know their their physical proof of of their idea, and uh, became a heresy, uh, you know, uh, and uh, and Mary you know Mary Magdalene was not the uh, was not was not the earthly personification of the of the goddess uh, the way Jesus was the earthly personification of God. Uh, so they, they they you know but but then the Catholic Church <laughs> deified uh, Mary uh, Jesus's mother and, 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 and because they knew they had to have a goddess. Uh, but anyway, uh, let's let's uh, let, let Philip K. Dick really. He 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 was a romantic, and he and he really got into this uh, soulmate thing so much so that 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 one time he went to Vancouver to a science fiction convention and and uh, met a girl there at, at the convention and fell in love with her right in in a, in a couple of days and then announced to everybody in the convention that she was his soulmate and they were going to uh, they were going to stay together and all of that, and that lasted about a week. <laughs> and uh, uh, so he, he uh, this whole romantic idea of the soulmate, like, you know, there's somebody out there that is your, uh, your soulmate. This comes from the idea that marriage, that marriage unites, unites the soul, whether, whether the souls, whether, the, whether the, the, the woman you marry or the man you marry, uh, have, uh, it, it's a it's a it's a concept beyond your your personal individuality, but unfortunately, it got romanticized into into the idea that oh yes, there's just one. So anyway, Philip says the belief that we are plural forms of God voluntarily descended to this prison world, voluntarily losing our memory, identity, and supernatural powers, <laughs> all of which can be regained, or sometimes the mystical conjunction, is one of the most radical religious views known in the West. But it is known. It is regarded as the great blasphemy, replication of the original sin mentioned in the first book of Adam and Eve and in Genesis. And for this pride and aspiration, we are told by orthodoxy, our original fall and exile and punishment for our being taken from our home, the garden, and put out and put into the prison was inflicted on us. They wish to be equal to and like us, the Elohim say, and toss us down. Yet, Yet I have reason to believe that this the great satanic blasphemy is true. So what he's, without really knowing uh, about Valentinian philosophy, he's, he is thereby declaring that he supports it, that he, that he, that he agrees with it. And, uh, uh, so that's, uh, I guess we're getting a little, a little, uh, past the end of the hour here. And, uh, so, uh, that's a good place to stop. Um, but uh, toward the end of the exegesis, he he uh, he entertains various uh, various other ideas, like uh, the, he what he he wonders about the the historical reality of Jesus. Of course, the Gnostics really don't worry about that because most Gnostics, including the Valentinians uh, and many of them, saw Christ as a spiritual figure, like like. Uh, like uh, in a sense, many of them believed that he was not physically here at all. He was, he was, he was a vision, you know. He was a, and that, and and so that that uh, whether he was historical or not, uh, it really is not that much of an issue. Uh, but uh, but but Nick uh, apparently holds to his Christian vision, uh, and. There is, a, as, I, as I think of and pointed out in here, he was, without knowing it, without knowing it, he 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 was certainly very, very much uh, in the Valentinian uh, uh, era. I, I wish he had had 
had studied the Gospel of Philip and, and the Gospel of Mary a little bit, and uh, you know, as much as as much as he did the Gospel of Thomas, uh, and uh, that, that I think he he uh, and of course he didn't live long enough to uh, uh, to uh, react to that. But uh, there is a great deal in the uh, exegesis that that is really remarkable, and and uh, and uh, there's a lot of very beautiful quotes and uh, and all that we left out, and and of course uh, it, uh, it it uh, it probably needs an abridged uh, somebody to get into it and and and, and do a do an abridged. Uh, uh, edition of it and cut out some of the redundancy you know I hope you've enjoyed it and got something out of this uh, this presentation and I'd like to say that Wikipedia does have a very nice 25 page uh, article on Philip K. Dick and his life and work and, and all that you you can consult and uh, and I I strongly recommend Vallis if, you're, if you never read anything by Philip K. Dick then read Vallis and and uh and next week uh next week we might we might get into uh, uh a similar a similar uh book uh by another another mad mystic science fiction writer and uh and decipher some of the secrets of the of of the other dimensions and the parallel worlds that we find in in Shaver's the Red Dwarf uh and that will certainly become a if we don't do it next week, uh, we will certainly do it soon. So tune in next week for another uh, another edition of the Hermetic Hour. And until then, good magic.